Hi family, this podcast contains a candid discussion about a very sensitive mental health topic. Your well-being matters and help is always available. If you or someone you know is in immediate need of mental health services, please reach out to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You can also find mental health resources by going to girlstalk.com. Inspired by my own journey with mental health, I founded Girls Talk, our own safe space where we share, listen, and support each other. So get cozy and join me, Adjoa Burr, for some much-needed Girls Talk. Hi, my lovely listeners. Today, I'm in conversation with the amazing Eileen Kelly. Eileen is the host of the acclaimed Going Mental podcast. I'm excited for you to listen to our meeting of the minds. Let's go for it. Hiya. Today, it's not not my day. It's just a bit of a weird day. Yeah. I had the most intense therapy session. I wasn't expecting it to be so intense and it's thrown uh-huh. me. Oh no, well, whatever you need. I know, no, no. I think sometimes quite good to get it out in the open, but it's all good. Totally. It gets more intense the more kind of work I think is like hitting home. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Have you been seeing this therapist for a while? This is a new therapist. Okay. I just started therapy again. So this is all, these are all new people. Yeah, I feel like that's always pretty intense just in itself because you almost have to like, not start over, but like tell your story again. Yes. But it's also like, it's a different story. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm kind of like reassessing and like kind of looking at things differently, but not really the same stuff that I brought to therapy the first time. Do you know what I mean? It's all like new stuff. Yeah, definitely. I know lots about you and I am <laughs> very much a fully converted going mental listener. So thank you so much for all that you bring and all that you are like it's very very soothing to hear you talk and I completely disagree with everyone who says that I don't know I think you've got a very soothing voice oh my gosh I remember you talking on one (laughs) of your podcasts about how you've been getting like comments about one I think that's just so rude but anyway I think you've got an amazing voice to listen to Oh, thank you that's very sweet that you picked up on that too yeah people don't always love my voice, which is funny, but you can't please everyone. <laughs> no, you definitely can't change it. That would be even more weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love, and I'm sure actually a lot of the Girls Talk community will be the same community. Do you know what I mean? The, totally. I the, feel like the topic our communities runs deep. Exactly. <laughs> are very aligned for sure. Saying that, could you introduce yourself to our lovely listeners? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so hi, everyone. My name's Eileen Kelly. I host a podcast called Going Mental, where I interview like doctors on specific mental health conditions. I also will have celebrities, public people on to talk about their experiences with mental health and just how they got to where they are today. And then I also will do some solos for my listeners to better understand my own journey and what got me to starting this podcast. So I'm from Seattle, Washington, which is like a very liberal city in the US, but I grew up like pretty religious. I grew up Catholic and my mom passed away when I was a really young girl. So I grew up in a house full of boys and just all of these things kind of working against me to get to where I am today. 
which is, you know, trying to talk about emotion. I don't know. You can imagine growing up without a mom, what that's like. So just even going through puberty and stuff, I felt very alone in my journey. And that made me start a blog and a Tumblr account, which is where I started. Sorry, I'm going really far back now, like over 10 years. Yes. <laughs> that was my next question. Okay, but you can... sorry. No, I love you going. You're, you're a pro. So I'll just ask the question. Obviously, you have your podcast going mental, but people may actually know you from your Tumblr and Instagram account, Killer and a Sweet Thang. What was the account and why did you start it? <laughs> Even though you answered that question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a Tumblr account. But basically when I was like in early high school, I mean, all my girlfriends, we all had Tumblrs where you like share photos and quotes and all the stuff. But I kind of started a Q&A on there where people would ask me questions for advice, which is hysterical kind of looking back because I'm like, wow, what did I know at 15? But it was more so... I just shared my life very, very openly. And this kind of felt like the birth of the internet. Like maybe Facebook had just been invented and people were like leaving MySpace for Facebook. This is like a while ago. And yeah, I had a boyfriend. And so I would talk about things like losing my virginity and going on birth control and really just these conversations I was dying to have with like a mother figure. And I also just going to Catholic school watched firsthand and lived firsthand when there's a lack of sex education or these conversations around our body, sexual health, but also mental health. Yeah. What those effects are like. Like I had many friends who like got abortions and just things that I felt were avoidable if we had had these conversations. And teenagers who had to hide these very intense situations from their parents. Like imagine going through that, you know, alone at 16 years old. That's like a lot for anyone. So that's what made me start the Tumblr account. And then I moved to New York for college, fast forward, and I decided to make a website, which was kind of the same idea, but it was more like an online magazine, an elevated version. God, that's so incredible. I always think back to the reasons why I started Girls Talk and it really actually brings me back to this idea of like sexual education and talking about what I think people thought when you're so far from it, when you, you know, are grown and you're not necessarily 15 anymore. I think people forget how big these things are, like losing your virginity or getting your period for the first time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I think you're so right that this this link between sexual education and mental health, I think a lot of my issues, so to speak, kind of were formed surrounding this idea that I didn't have a place to even, wasn't necessarily educated on any of those things, but also didn't have a place to talk amongst other people who were going through it. I spoke to a few friends about it, but there was obviously, you know, they were sensitive subjects that not necessarily made me feel ashamed, but I didn't feel that I necessarily had the space to talk about it. A hundred percent. And also like what kind of, you know, information I'm getting about birth control talking to a peer in my age group is Mm -hmm. going to be a lot of misinformation and, you know, it's not the same as talking to an adult or doctor. So just kind of trying to bridge that gap a little bit. 
And where did you get a lot of your information from at that point? Were you providing resources on that yes. on that Tumblr page? It was a mix. There were sources. I mean, when I started more of the blog, we would talk to kind of gynecologists. We did a lot of work with Planned Parenthood. But then most of it was this peer-to-peer format. Wow. So kind of like talking to a sister or talking to someone in your age group. I felt like when I go to the gynecologist, sometimes it felt extremely clinical and it was so unemotional. Yeah. You know, like you want someone to sit down with you and be like, oh, Uh I tried this birth control. You know, these were my symptoms or affected me this way and it made me feel kind of depressed. Or then I switched to the IUD and I loved that one. You know, it's kind of like online reviews. Yeah. Is very different than just going to a doctor. And there's a place for both. And I felt like the first one was missing at that period in the internet culture. Yeah. And I think you're so right. It's just like, I mean, I've definitely found a gynecologist finally who obviously feels very much like a doctor, but on a, I suppose, female level feels like a friend so that kind of sometimes it's almost like yes I know I can just look up the side effects or certain things attached to certain medications but it would be lovely if you told me not only validated certain feelings and thoughts I have around it or other side effects that might just not be written on the packet but also gave me your own kind of like opinion on it that wasn't necessarily based on the medical side of things. A hundred percent. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I definitely have. And I've talked to a lot of people who used to write into the blog of like almost on accident, kind of being like slut shamed by a gynecologist or a doctor. Like one of the first things they'll ask you is like, how many partners do you have? And it's like, okay, if if I'm not in like a monogamous relationship right now, like I think it's pretty normal in today's day and age to like maybe have multiple partners. And I've been like truly like gawked at or looked, you know, you like look at your doctor and they have like crazy eyes and they're like well how many people are you sleeping with and so do we need to test you and I'm like oh my gosh you know if I am using protection x y and z but I think sometimes there's that disconnect a hundred percent and I think I remember speaking to my gynecologist and I was like talking about freezing my eggs Mm -hmm. and she was like "Mm, well I don't know if you necessarily need to freeze your eggs now I think you should do it at this age blah de blah and I was like well you know I'm in a relationship and then I went on some like mad tangent about how the possibility of my boyfriend leaving me and then me being over the age of freezing your eggs so shouldn't I freeze my eggs now just in case he decides he doesn't want to be with me but at least I know that I have the eggs because I want to have a child and instead of kind of shaming me on that madness she was like you know what you know there's some great points in there you know, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, see, that's amazing. I think that's what we're all looking for. But just like the healthcare system and how it's set up and like doctors being overworked. And especially if they're an appointment after appointment after appointment. Like yeah. sometimes you're in and out in 15 minutes and they don't have the extra time to have that bedside manner. How do you think we need to change sex education so that we actually get sex education? 
I mean, you touched on the healthcare system, and I know it obviously varies from country to country, state to state. But I think let's go back to school. Like, how do you think we could change that? Well, we're we're really screwed up here in the U.S. in terms of that, just because we have abstinence only education in certain states. Oh yes. And so, if they take like certain federal funding, then they have to teach abstinence only, which is so mind-boggling to me because even if they don't want to teach that stuff, sometimes the school districts, you know, need that extra money. So then they're like, okay, here's a trade-off. And to me, I, I always thought the same thing with like drugs or drinking. Like when you tell someone not to do it, it doesn't uh-huh. actually change yeah. whether they do it. They just don't have 100%. the tools to then do it in an informed way. Yeah. And I always felt that way with sex. I'm like, people are still going to have sex, obviously. But now you're going to be dealing with like teen pregnancy and, you know, sexually transmitted infections and all these things and consent. That's like the biggest issue for me. I'm like, if you don't teach consent or talk about pleasure and that sex should always be pleasurable and empowering, then of course you're going to have these gray areas where people end up having sexual relations that they then don't feel like should have happened. Yeah. I mean, I kind of just named a few, but I'm like, those things need to be introduced in school. Like to me, that should be mandatory. I also think the younger, the better. And that doesn't mean like kindergartners need to be learning about like sex or oral, but it should be age appropriate. Like here are the names of your actual genitals and like no one should touch you there when a kid is really small and then every year they kind of add what they find is age appropriate. Yeah. I think that would be brilliant. When I was in middle school and like we first started getting our periods, like we had one day in Catholic school where they separated the boys and the girls and then they talked to you about like puberty and it was so confusing and so awkward. I think it was my history teacher giving the talk. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh my, of course I'm not going to raise my hand and ask questions because it's incredibly uncomfortable and awkward. And then I have to go to class with this teacher afterwards. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think that confusion, I mean, it most certainly followed me throughout my 20s. You know, obviously I was like, I educated myself and I grew in confidence about having those conversations on a like kind of larger scale, not only with my community, but also with my family and friends. But a lot of the confusion, not, not necessarily like medical confusion, but I think just as like pleasure and what I found enjoyable and how, how to kind of take agency over those things and what it meant to sleep around and, and what it meant to just all sorts of things. I think also the gray areas of sex as well, that I think we've been educated through like, through the likes of kind of, you know, I may destroy you or or lots of certain other kind of literature and and, and TV shows and stuff. A hundred percent. And still trying to navigate that in my late twenties, the gray area. (laughs) It's never, it's never fully clear. I mean, that brings me to dating culture. And with social media entering the sphere, it makes things a lot more complicated. And so I think these are just really important conversations to have. And I think you're doing 
a great job. And it's, I mean, I've been familiar with your work for a really long time. And I always felt like it was, I'm like, oh, wow, we're kind of doing like similar things in, in different, yeah, in different, like aligned things in different countries. And well, I think also what I love about what you do is, is you bridge the gap between storytelling and I suppose stuff that is based in fact and professional kind of resources. What kind of brought you to do those solo podcasts? I think when I started it, you know, when I started the podcast, it was during COVID and I just interviewed other people about their experiences. And it was kind of this way after just discharging from a mental hospital to come to terms with what I had just been through and my experience. Like, I'm like, oh, if I could just talk to other people who have been through something similar, I'll feel okay and not so ashamed that I had to step away from my life. Yeah. And I needed that help. And so, you know, it's so much easier to talk to other people about their issues than (laughs) admit and talk about your own. Yeah. So it definitely took me some time. Like it wasn't just right away that I was open and vulnerable to talking about my story. But I think as I just met these amazing people who opened up to me so much, I was so moved by their stories and their journeys that I felt kind of like paying it forward. And I'm like, okay, I like, it really helped me heal some of the internal shame I felt just hearing from these people. So that's kind of where I just delicately started just putting out an episode here and there of like, okay, this is what my diagnosis is, was one of the episodes I did that I was extremely nervous about. I think I like didn't sleep for two days before I posted it. Really? So I was just like, oh my gosh, once it's out there, it's out there and it's scary and yeah, it's so intimate. And like, what if this affects my future dating life or it affects the way people perceive me and just all of these paranoid thoughts. So I would say, yeah, I mean, that was kind of my reasoning behind it, but it's wild. Like some of my solo episodes are the best performing episodes. Yes, that's what I noticed. And I also think when people come to a podcast, they want to feel some connection to who is hosting or whose show it is. So just letting people in has been difficult, but very rewarding. Yeah. So I've just been sharing as I've become comfortable, more and more comfortable, but it's kind of like, Hey, here's the, you know, the story behind the person that's talking to you, but it's been a journey to say the least, just as I've gotten more comfortable sharing more parts of myself. Yeah. I think it's very important for like all people to understand that the the process of sharing your story is one that should have a lot of kind of thought and care kind of weighted in it. You know, I think we live in a time where, I mean, a beautiful one where people are very open and vulnerable, but I wonder if to a certain extent that sometimes feels quite pressured for people to kind of come out and share the kind of like inner workings of their lives. So I think it's really important for people to know that sharing your story is something that should be really thought about, you know? I couldn't agree with you more. And I mean, it's scary to be vulnerable. It's scary to be vulnerable online, especially, you know, 
people are always going to have something to say. People are always going to have something negative. And I think the more you open up and the more vulnerable you are or intimate with your life, it's like, oh, wow, those comments hurt more because it's a greater snapshot of who you actually are. Yeah. How do you kind of navigate the negative comments? You know, I would say for the most part, my community is pretty positive. Brilliant. If they're coming to listen to this content over and over, they're seeking it out, you know? Yeah. Because it usually speaks to them. But I mean, it's never easy. That's what I have a therapist for and friends for, (laughs) you know? And I think it's also a unique position being like a public person or semi-public person. And so that's just kind of one of the things that come with it. But I always feel like the positives outweigh the negatives. Oh, no, 100%. Like even people I've met before I went to McLean, it was because someone opened up to me about their diagnosis. And that's how I received mine because I was like, wow, we it sounds so similar. I need to look up what this thing is. Wow. And so... I just remember those moments in my life and I'm like, wow, this person didn't have to open up to me, but they did and it changed the trajectory of my life. So I'm happy to do that for someone else, even if it just helps them in a small way. Yeah. There's one thing talking so openly and honestly about one's own mental health journey. But on top of that, I don't think a lot of people discuss deciding to go to a mental health facility. So I think you touched on it briefly, but when I look back at that first initial kind of response to this idea put forward that I should go away, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember feeling pretty exhausted. So I kind of was quite like open. I don't know if I necessarily wanted to go, but I was like, I'm so tired and so unhappy. So whatever's going to help or shut everyone up, I might as well just go. But I remember feeling a deep shame within my, you know, friendship group about having to like kind of go away. It felt like a, a massive failure. But what was it like at McLean? And how did you make the decision to go? I had just gone through a breakup, actually. Yeah. And... My ex had actually spent time at McLean. Oh, wow. And so he broke up with me because he was like, I love you dearly, but you're too sick to be in a relationship. Like verbatim, that's what he said to me. Yeah. And he was like, I'll help you. Like, I'll still be here to support you, but I just think you have your whole life ahead of you. And if you get the help now, you will live like a very different life and not be in this cycle of pain anymore. And I don't know what about the way he communicated it to me or that specific period in my life that I was receptive to what he was saying. And so, yeah, we broke up and then I went to McLean. And I had done an outpatient program first and it honestly made me feel a lot worse because you go to therapy all day or you're in treatment all day and then you have to go home. And I was just, you know, at my apartment by myself and I felt just kind of in a spiral. And so I was like, I need a higher level of support. So that's when I went to McLean. And I really felt like I had nothing to lose at that point. So I just kind of surrendered to the program. Like I was like, I'm here. I also feel like I was very aware of the privilege of being able to go. 
which helped me a lot. You know, it's very expensive. And I think that can deter people sometimes. So it's interesting. Totally. I'm like, it's an expensive program. I can step away from work for several months. Like there are many people out there who can't, who don't have this option available to them. So I'm going to kind of milk it for what it's worth. And that's actually something I told a lot of the women in my program is I'm like, we're all so lucky to be here that we might as well just make the most of it. I'm like, I have a team of six top doctors in the US like working on my case like that's crazy I'm never going to have this experience again like I might as well just lay it all out for them and see if they can help me and overall I had an extremely positive experience there and it changed my life within that relationship before you went to McLean had other friends kind of brought up the idea of you kind of seeking you know more help what was it that your partner was seeing that I wonder if other people weren't seeing. Yeah, no, it was actually the opposite. So most people tried to talk me out of going, including that therapist I was seeing, my dad, my family members. Everyone was kind of like, hey, if you really want to do this, we'll support you, but we don't think you need it. Really? Oh, I think you mentioned this on the podcast. Sorry, yeah. But that's so crazy. Yeah, and so... I think I did a good job at that. Like I was very high functioning sick person. And so people who weren't really in it with me or didn't see the day to day didn't actually see how bad it was. And so I feel like my boyfriend, I let him in enough to really see how much I was struggling and I communicated with him how much I was struggling, even though I was able to like go to work and, you know, get certain things done. But Inside, I felt like I was dying. I was living like a double life. Yep. It definitely feels like a complete double life. When did your family and friends kind of like, obviously they, in the end, I suppose, supported you going there, but when did they kind of get on board or I suppose see how much of a change it was making in your life? Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a phone the whole time I was there. How long were you there for? Five months. Oh my God. I know, no phone, no computer. Like I was off the grid. So I would say it probably didn't really hit them until I went away. And we wrote letters to each other and I kept in touch with my friends while I was there. But I was able to truly just focus on my treatment and getting better. But I would say family... I kind of was like, I know that I need this and I know myself well enough. And even with my therapist, I let that therapist go. I was just like, I know myself. It truly felt like life or death. Yeah. And so sometimes you just have to trust your gut. And that's what I did. When you look back, or maybe you've spoken to your friends about it since, but what do you think when you speak about this idea that they didn't think that you were sick enough to go? Where do you think those feelings? come from? Is it judgment? Is it again, like going back to this idea of just like social mental health stigma, you know, and you see it within the people who are closest to you. It's not just, you know, like people outside of your kind of social realm. I know that when I was young, I wonder if I was a mirror to the fact that they weren't there yet on their own kind of discovery of self. I wonder if Within that stigma, people had their own idea of what rock bottom was. And that 
my rock bottom didn't necessarily fit into that kind of picture of what they kind of imagined it or thought it to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was very secretive at that time in my life too. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know how to communicate and I was afraid of being judged. Or I didn't know if they would understand or if they would think I was crazy, you know, just how bad I was feeling. So I think there was a lot of just miscommunication on my part and not letting people in. So they were seeing a version of me, which maybe, yeah, was down, but not to the level that I truly felt. Yeah. And then I'm sure it's compounded by some level of stigma. I mean, there's a lot of stigma, like even for going away, you imagine like, oh, it must be someone who's dealing with, you know, a schizophrenic episode and like truly needs to be in 24-hour care. And I think people have from the media and from movies, they have a very specific idea of what like mentally ill looks like. Exactly. And it's also a silent battle. It's not a physical one. You know, that's a big thing is we treat mental illness very differently than we do physical illness. You couldn't see that I'm in a wheelchair or something. Like you can't see that someone's not doing all right. Yeah. And it's also, you can't take a blood test. Yeah. So I think that's one of the added factors of why it's difficult to struggle with mental health stuff is because people can't see it. When we talk about stigmas surrounding mental health, what do you think some of the main ones are that you're trying to break? Sorry about being so vulnerable about your own journey. And have they changed, I suppose, since the first time that you started talking so openly? Because the world has changed so much, yeah. I know, it's changed so much and in a positive direction. Like every day I have people, you know, reach out and share with me back and be vulnerable with me and about their mental health journeys and just so much more. But yeah, I would say stuff changed. Even within my own friend groups, I had a friend tell me when I got out that she still couldn't understand why I went away. Yeah. And that she felt I went away for an experiment. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. Very expensive one. Yeah, very expensive yeah. and long experiment. So just certain things where I'm like, wow, you really don't get it. So let me talk about it. So maybe you can listen to this and start to understand but also, again, like if someone's never been through that feeling themselves, they're not going to really truly get it. Just also being able to talk about what it was like in there. We had a lot of psychoeducation in the hospital, which is just like truly learning about the disorders and what's going on in your brain. And there's so much new research and science to teach people who don't really believe in mental health struggles that it is actually like you know, people have genetic predispositions and your brain chemistry is different. Or if you, if you experience trauma at a young age, that can change your brain chemistry and all these things. So to me, I almost felt like it, it gave me the education to kind of back up yes. how I was feeling. But it's a process and no one's perfect either. Like when my friend said that to me, I'm like, I don't hold it against you. I'm not angry at you. Like, I think it comes out of ignorance and just not knowing about this stuff. Yeah. And when you talk about backing up those feelings with education, I definitely felt that as well. I suppose I want to touch briefly on 
the idea of a diagnosis. I think when I got my diagnosis, it kind of felt the same. It validated and backed up feelings and thoughts that I didn't have the, I wasn't able to articulate or make sense of. But I think that we still live in a time where we battle with this idea of a label. I think sometimes we claim it and celebrate it. And I think sometimes also we run away from it. So I wonder what that diagnosis felt like and whether it felt, I hate this word, but if it felt empowering. Oh, completely. And again, this is unique to everyone. I know some people who have the same diagnosis as me that hated the feeling of a diagnosis and they felt defined by it and weighed down by it. I think for me, I spent so many years being like, I know I'm not crazy. Like I feel different or certain things affect me differently than my friends and my peers, but I can't put my finger on it. And then when I got a diagnosis, I was like, it all makes sense. Like, thank goodness, this is real. I'm not making it up. And also I was taught that like, okay, it's treatable, but you have to get the right help. And so the longer I went without a diagnosis, the longer you know, it was until I could heal because I was just kind of on a hamster wheel and doing the runaround and not getting the correct treatment. And the diagnosis for anyone listening or wondering is borderline personality disorder. And I've done a podcast on that. Yeah, which you should all listen to. You know, I really had no idea what that disorder entailed and neither did I, was I aware of like, you know, how much stigma is surrounding it as one of like, I think one of the leading disorders for that. Oh yeah. It's like one of the most stigmatized disorders. I actually was even talking about this with my therapist the other day is if you've been diagnosed with that and then you have like a custody battle, they can use it in court to like get custody of like kids. Like there's just terrible stigma when just even in the last like eight years, a lot of new amazing research has come out that it's actually like very treatable. Whereas 10 years ago, they didn't think it was treatable. And why do you think it is so stigmatized? Yeah, I think a lack of education and also the actual symptoms. I mean, it makes people like highly volatile, high rates of having suicidal ideation and thoughts is is one of the criteria for the diagnosis. Yeah. And it can make people, you know, act out in certain ways. It's basically, it's like emotion dysregulation disorder. It's people who don't know how to regulate their emotions. And then when you really start to dive into the diagnosis, you can understand how people develop it. Or, you know, a lot of people come from really horrible traumatic situations and upbringing. It also has a genetic component. But I think that's why it's so stigmatized. Also, there's no pill that can fix it. You know, some like schizophrenia or severe bipolar has really great medication that's been proven to help it. And something like BPD, it's more like therapy work. So it takes longer. And I don't know, I think that all adds to the stigma. Thank you so much for sharing that. I suppose my next question for you is like, what's next? You know, you've got such an incredible podcast. What does the future hold for you? Or more importantly, what what do you want from 
the next couple of years of your 20s or, you know, even this year, next yeah. year? I think just continuing storytelling in different ways, yeah. you know, in the future, like working on other podcasts. I produced like a friend short film this year on a school shooting, just I would say dipping my hands in like different honey pots. Like <laughs> yeah. I'm launching a new brand next year on I'm stepping back into the sexual health world and oh, launching brilliant. like a sex toy brand that I've been working on for a while. That's so fucking cool. I love to hear Yeah, this. continuing the podcast though, just keeping myself busy, keeping myself mentally healthy is most important. That's my priority and just keeping myself stable and that's most important. And then everything else kind of comes below that. I think when you're on a journey like ours and, and so many people, I think you're continuously having to reevaluate what's important, you know, and I think it changes over the course of your journey as well. Completely. Yeah. And it, again, you said it amazing. Like it, it's a journey. It's not just over yes. just because, you know, it's I. so not linear, isn't it? It's, it's not the, linear. I forget that all the time when I'm like hit with a wave of sadness out of the blue for no apparent reason. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means, you know, life throws things at you. And again, this is something I've just accepted is going to be a part of the rest of my life. But now I have the tools to manage it. So it's doable. And now I can talk about it with people and friends and accept that support from other people. And a little cheesy question that I think you've probably been asked, you know, <laughs> a lot of times, but, you know, maybe let's say like someone who's just been given a diagnosis or someone who is listening to this and we'd hope is relating. I mean, obviously we wouldn't wish this on our worst enemy, you know, I hope. But if they do feel like they are relating in some sort of way, what would you say to them? Um, I would just say that you're not alone. Yeah. And there are people out there who understand and there's help available. I know the feeling so well. It can feel so daunting and so scary and so much larger than you. But similar to what my ex said to me, like you have your whole life ahead of you and you want to live like an empowered, happy life. And so you have to kind of seek out that help. I love that. Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you so much for having me. We've got one silly little bit okay, okay. that we'd love you to participate in, which is our rap segment. Oh, no. So here, <laughs> here at Girls Talk, we... No, no, don't worry. You don't have to rap as okay. an RAP. <laughs> okay. <'cause I laughs> Can you imagine? You're literally just, like, I don't want to do that. I, yeah. I almost just fell off my chair. I'm like, wait, I have, I have anxiety problems. <laughs> We are not going to make you <laughs> rap. I mean, don't you worry. <laughs> Here at Girls Talk, we create safe spaces online and in real life as well. So the podcast is no different. Eileen, it's a safe space. So tell us the worst date you've ever been on. Oh my gosh, the worst date I've ever been on. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm sure I've been on some really terrible dates before. It could be also your behavior as well. I always <laughs> think it's quite... <laughs> oh, um... I've gone on a date with someone actually off of a dating app. 
who when I got there, it's kind of like the traditional catfish trajectory where I just sat down and I was like, wow, this is, I've been tricked. And (laughs) you look nothing like the photo, but also just was like within two seconds, I was like, wow, I'm about to waste an hour of my life and was pretty upset about it. And I sat through the whole date because I felt I didn't want to be mean and just get up and leave. And it was just going nowhere. That was a pretty bad one. I actually was telling a girlfriend of mine about one I went on a few years ago where I got to a coffee shop right on time for the state. And the guy was already sitting down eating a sandwich. Like, I'm like, when did you get here? 30 minutes ago? 20 minutes ago? And so... I had to like go up and, you know, get my drink, pay for it myself. And it was just very bizarre. And then within 10 minutes of meeting me, he said, I have to go walk my dog. And I was like, what? So was he just bored getting his sandwich and felt, you know what? I'm going to organize a date. I don't know, but we had planned it like a week prior. Oh, wow. It was very bizarre. I still can't wrap my head around it, but it's kind of a funny story. And yeah, so he just got up and left me after 10 minutes. And I'm like, um, like, was I that bad, you know? <laughs> um, so that's kind of why I don't, oh, I don't do the dating apps anymore. Are you dating at the moment or in a relationship? I am kind of, yeah, I'm in a long distance relationship right now. So we'll see uh, how long that lasts. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been, I'm, I was in one. We're not that long distance anymore it's definitely hard work but I mean there's lots of pros to it as well yeah I think it gives you time to work on yourself and work on your own career and things but you really have to prioritize communication and if someone's not good at that either one of us then it's not gonna work so we'll see but I'm just kind of taking day by day Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and I hope you feel better. Yeah, I'm so sorry to everyone listening for my really, I already have a low voice as it is. So I'm sure this is going to be like a heavily based podcast episode (laughs) because of my cold. But thank you so much again for your continuous like support of the cause and of us and the community. I feel very much part of that. So thank you so much for the the support that you give me as well. And to my lovely listeners, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And as always, mad, mad, mad amounts of love. Thank you to the ever-inspiring Eileen Kelly for coming on the podcast. You can follow Eileen at Eileen on Instagram and Eileen in Paris on TikTok. Be sure to listen to Eileen's podcast, Going Mental, wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, mad, mad, mad amounts of love. We may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Talk to us on our Instagram at Girls Talk, or send us your poetry, essays, stories, artwork, or anything else you want to share at girlstalk.com. This week's podcast was produced by Girls Talk and Wicked Child Studio. Original music composed by Mikey Long. Mad, mad, mad love to Joe Malone London for their generous support of the podcast. And as always, we are always here and we're always listening. I'm Adrua Boa and this was the Girls Talk Podcast. <laughs>